Good evening. Uh, we're going to continue our study through the book of First Samuel. And last week we looked at chapter 1. Today we'll look at chapter 2, uh, Samuel's prayer. Remember, some helpful information on the book of First Samuel. Originally, this was one manuscript in the Hebrew. First um, Samuel deals with uh, the death of Saul. Closes with the death of Saul, I should say. And Second Samuel takes up with David's reign. And it was originally grouped with Joshua, Judges, and Kings. And uh, they were probably grouped together due to, you know, their content, things like that. Uh, they're, they're traced back, really, to the, the books of the history of Israel um, from the conquest of Palestine all the way to the captivity in, in Babylon. And so we don't know who wrote it. Um, we don't know when it was written, but we know a little bit, and we looked at this last week about who Samuel uh, was. His name means asked of God or name of God. He's both the prophet and judge over Israel, and uh, <clears throat> the New Testament refers to him in honorable ways. Um, just in way of review, last week we concluded, as we looked at, at the first chapter there, several principles that we can draw from about God. And first of all, we said that God overrules in human affairs, both great and small, to accomplish his purpose. And secondly, we said that God always acts in the best interest of his people, whether he blesses, judges, or teaches. Thirdly, we said that God always calls appropriate leaders for his work and uses them to move his plan along. God uses people. That's what he's in the business of doing. Doesn't have to, but he chooses to. And then fourthly, God is present with his people and never abandons them. And that was a very comforting thought as we thought about that. That God will never, if you're truly saved, God will never turn to you and say, okay, I'm revoking your salvation. If you've truly trusted in Christ, we believe in the perseverance of the saints that that they are secure in Christ. Uh, Fifthly, we said that God is a righteous judge and expects his children to reflect his character. That applied to Israel and applies to them. That's why God chose Israel to reflect the righteousness of God in that community, in that world, in that time in which they lived, and they didn't do it. They actually became worse than the nations they were supposed to reflect the righteousness of God to. And so God had to judge them. And then lastly, we said that God is at work in the most minute details of history, working out his purpose for his children. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that God has a plan and a purpose. And tonight we'll look at Hannah's prayer, her, her theology a little bit. But we, we mentioned uh, last week that when Hannah prayed, when she was stressed out, that it expanded her presence, it expanded her desires, and it expanded her influence. And that's what prayer does for us even today. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 2 and uh, talk a little bit about Hannah's uh, prayer. Uh, I, I just in way of introduction, I want to say that this is the only prayer written by f- a female in the Scriptures. Now, you have Miriam's song and Mary's song. These are songs about God, but they're not addressed to God. So it's, this is a very unique Scripture we're looking at tonight, and it stands as a, a, a theological treatise, you might say. Remember when 9-11 happened. And you didn't even have to live near where those planes went into those buildings. You didn't have to live in New York City or Pennsylvania or D.C. where those planes came down. But everyone was asking the same question 
across the country and around the world, literally. Why did God allow something like this to happen? I mean, you know, it, it was hard for people to comprehend. And people would question, where was God when this happened? How could he allow this to happen? And the answer was given, well, you know what? God didn't want this to happen, but it kind of caught God by surprise. But God's going to love us through this trial, and you know what? Uh, this wasn't God's plan. And whether it's an airplane crashing into buildings and killing thousands of people, or a tsunami who wipes out villages and, and thousands of people, you get the same answer. You kind of have, you walk away with the mentality, well, God rolled the dice and he didn't know what was going to happen. If he did, he could have prevented it, but he didn't know. And when tragedy strikes, it may be that we're called upon to give an answer for that. Whether it's globally, whether it's locally, whether it's in a relationship. And people ask the question, where is God when things like this happen? And Hannah, in her prayer, has only one appeal to you. Listen, please don't say that God didn't know that this was going to happen. She doesn't want you to go down that road. We're tempted to give that answer. If God didn't know, he doesn't have to answer for it. In other words, God is not in control at the time. He wasn't in control in the original design in the garden. You know, it got out of hand. That's not in, in God's original plan. There was no death. There was no sin. There was no trials. It's not in God's final plan in eternity. The Bible says there's no tears in heaven. But it was in God's mind before creation. And this kind of calls us to require some thinking about this theologically. God is righteous and God is never the ancient the agent, excuse me, of sin. God did not do those evil things. But there has never been a sin, listen to this, that God did not ordain. He's never the agent of sin, but he's sovereign over it all. There's a difference between responsibility and sovereignty. God is sovereign over all things that happen on the earth, but he's not responsible for being the agent of sin. He doesn't cause us to sin. You'll never be able to accuse God of doing anything evil or wrong or sinning in any capacity. You'll never have the opportunity to arrest God and charge him with a crime. That's not going to ever happen because God is perfect. God is holy. God is righteous. See, we're the agents of sin. We are the guilty ones. Us and the devil. And so, just as God is never guilty of sin, man, listen, is never sovereign over sin. Just as God is never guilty of sin, man is never sovereign over sin. See, Hannah understood this tension. And it is a tension. Our logical minds don't think this way. Here she is, an abused wife, abused by the wife behind door number two, Panina, she couldn't do anything about her barrenness. She couldn't have children. And her husband's second wife, who didn't have any problem having children at all, constantly mocked her and belittled her, berated her. And she was emotionally abused. And she did the only thing she could do. She finally prayed. She brought her request, where? To the Lord. And guess what? 
we, we're so surpri- we shouldn't be surprised at this, but we are. The Lord granted her request. And guess what happened? She gave, gave birth to a son. And then she lived up to the bargain. She lived up to the promise she made God. She gave that only son that she had back to the Lord after he was weaned. See, Hannah understands that God is holy. Han- Hannah understands that God is good, that he's sovereign, that he's powerful, that he's wise. She worships God by calling him Savior, Creator, Sovereign Judge. She acknowledges that all people are sinful, and she even mocks the idea that sinners and rebels are always trying to overthrow his sovereignty. And she looks forward to that final day of judgment when everything everything will be set in order. And as a result of God granting one of her prayers, God is holy, and she knows She's not, and she needs a Savior. See, the goal here tonight is to set forth Hannah's theology so that she may be able to persuade us to trust God's sovereignty as she did in her situation. Well, let's open in a word of prayer before we read the text tonight, chapter 2, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather here in this place and worship you as the body of Christ. And Lord, we thank you for your word, your inerrant word that we have in our hand and that we can now study and apply to our lives. We pray for your spirit's enablement. We thank you. Bless our time tonight in your word, in Jesus' name. Let me read chapter 2, and then we'll draw out some points. 1 Samuel chapter 2, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none like, there is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed and the bows of the mighty are broken and the feeble bind on strength but the feeble bind on strength those who were full have hired themselves out for bread but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger the barren has borne seven but she who has many children is forlorn the lord kills and brings to life he brings down to sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of of the priest this is hannah's prayer and we're going to look a little bit about hannah's theology where did she come up with this well the first point here in verse one is that god is more significant than people god is more significant than people 
She says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I will rejoice in your salvation. What does Hannah end up doing? She gives back her son to God. That's where we ended in chapter 1. She loves her son, but you know what? She loves her God more. And that's a very important principle. We tend to put our joy in the gift that God has given us and not in the giver. And it's very important that we understand that. Charles Simeon, who was a pastor in London, years ago, he said this, the return which people make to God for his mercies is to idolize the gift and forget the giver. That is so true. God gives you something good, and what do we do? We make an idol out of it. And we forget the one who gave it to us. See, God asked the question, do you love me more than... I remember even uh, when we were, we were dating before we were married. Um, my wife tells me that she remembers the day when I said, you know what, I just want you to understand, I'll never love you more than I love God. And we had that understanding going into our relationship. Contentment is to be with the Lord, not the blessings of the Lord. Important principle. We get so caught up sometime in the blessings of the Lord that we forgot the Lord who gave them to us. This happens a lot of times with children. God blesses your family with children, and what do we do? We idolize the children. We make the family a child-dominant family. Everything revolves around the children. We forget that these children are just on loan. They're a gift from God to us. And God requires our stewardship to raise these children up in a way that's honoring to the Lord, not to idolize the children. See, if your children, and caring for your children is taking you away from the things of God, there's something wrong. That's a red flag. Never allow the gift to eclipse the giver. So this prayer is to God. But it's also reminding her of the simple principle that God is more important than people. I mean, how do we understand God's sovereignty over difficulty in life? What happens when something tragic happens. What happens when someone dies? What then? See, if you don't think that that God's glory is more important than people, you're going to have a problem when you encounter those kind of situations. If you put people on the same level of the importance of God, then when trials come and death comes and health fails, the glory of God doesn't help you at all. What does it do? It brings confusion. Because you don't have a proper thinking. You don't have a proper theology. God always needs to be exalted above the plane of people. God revealing his glory is more significant than people. That sounds harsh, but it's true. We need to treasure God's sovereignty. He has more value than anything else. And that's how we should view it. Stop and ask yourself the question, what brings you more joy than anything else in life? Joy has to be with the Lord. It has to come from the Lord. You know, a recipe for a terrible marriage is when you take two people who think they can only be happy if they are married to one another. That's the only way they can ever be happy. And someone said a recipe for a healthy marriage is to take two people who love each other, are committed to each other, 
But you know what? They love the Lord more. We need to be content in Christ. We need to be laboring for Christ. And this is really the foundation of Hannah's prayer. So make sure that you keep God more significant than people. Secondly, in verse 2, excuse me, she says, There is none like, none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. You know, this really points out that God is more holy than people are. This is her principle. This is what she's trying to show us. God reflects his own holiness perfectly. You know, all religions are not the same. That's just not simply true. God is far above all. Uh, You stop and you think Aaron's two sons were killed by God. They were killed by God with fire. Why? For burning strange fire before God. God is holy. God is just. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, after that happened, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. And what happened to Aaron? Aaron held his peace. He couldn't say anything. He couldn't answer back to God. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Verse 45, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Or in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders or even in the book of habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 it says you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong see god could never be the agent of sin god could never be accused of doing something evil or wrong When you accuse God of being the agent of sin, you're accusing him of wrongdoing. And we cannot do that. In James chapter 1, verse 13, we know this verse, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So the question is why? Why do these things happen? Why, God? We have to remind ourselves when these things happen that God has never sinned will never sin, can never sin. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God hates sin. Angels who are holy, holy angels, fall down before him and worship him and cry out three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And that's what she says here. There is no rock besides him because he is holy. He is the rock. He'll never lead you astray. That's the idea of a rock. It's a, it's a stable place. It's a refuge. If you've ever been in a, a crossing a stream or being swimming in a, 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 a creek or anything like that, we used to do that back home. And sometimes the water would be moving pretty quick. And in the middle of the stream or the middle of the creek, there'd be a rock. And the goal was to get to the rock so you could have something to stand on before you tried to make it across the, the rest of the stream. Because you knew when you reached that rock that you could stand on something that wasn't going to be moved by the water. You were on stable ground. That's what the Bible calls us to do is to stand on Him. 
Use him as a place of attack to hide behind him and defend. See, he's our foundation. He's the one that cannot be moved. And Moses even called God a rock often. So we want to remember that God is more significant than people, and God is more holy than people are. And then thirdly, in verse 3, he says, she says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. What does this principle point out? Is that God is the judge of all people. No one judges God. He is the judge of all people. God knows what you are thinking. I mean, we can pray in silence, just like Hannah was doing in chapter 1. Remember, she was praying in silence. Her mouth was moving, but nothing was coming out. And Eli thought she was drunk, because that's not usually how they prayed in Israel. They would pray vocally. You would want to hear people's prayers. But we can pray in silence, and you know what? God hears our prayer, just like he heard Hannah's prayer. And that's why the Lord instructs us in Matthew 6, verse 6, but when you pray, go what? Into your room. And shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. You don't need to to make a big deal about it. Now this isn't setting a precedent that says whenever you pray, never pray in public. It's not saying that. But he's really talking to the attitude of prayer. The idea should be, you know what, the prayer is to God. It's not to the people standing next to you. And he says in verse 6, And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you understand that God knows exactly what you need even before you pray it? I mean, isn't that a comforting thought? That when we have needs in our lives, we don't even have to vocalize them. And God knows what they are. But you know what? He also knows all of our evil thoughts. He knows all of our bad thoughts too. He knows all of our bad motives. See, we can never question someone's motive. In the flesh. We don't know. We don't know what people's motivations are. You hear that. Well, I don't think they did that with the right attitude. How do you know? How do you know? I mean, you may have questioned about it, but you don't know for sure. Only God knows our motives. See, and Hannah understood this. And she said in her prayer that he will judge you with that kind of knowledge. There's nothing going to be hidden from God on Judgment Day. Matter of fact, in James chapter 5, verse 9, He points out, he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. He's talking to believers. So that you may not be judged. Behold, what? The judge is standing at the door. Don't think you're going to get away with anything. You know, once in a while our kids will go in the room and they'll close the door. They'll be doing something in there. And you walk up to the door and you can hear them plotting and planning. As soon as you knock on the door, what do you guys do? Oh, nothing. We're not doing anything. Well, I just heard you talking about what you were going to do. And don't, don't even try it. See, the judge is standing at the door. That has the idea the judge is coming to dinner. (laughs) And he's going to sit around and weigh your actions at the dinner table. Someone once said, you're allowed to be as proud as you are holy. You are allowed to be as proud as you are holy. See, we think of ourselves sometimes high and mighty. God says, no, 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 don't go there. In 1 Samuel 2.10, it says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Everyone will be judged. And you don't want to have arrogance and pride in your heart. 
on that day. Proverbs 15.25 says, The Lord tears down the house of the the proud. He tears it down. Or Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. He will break down the arrogant. Hannah understood this. She was broken before God. She was humble before God. So God is more significant than people, verse 1. God is more holy than people, verse 2. God is the judge of all people, verse 3. And now we come to verses 4 through 8. God is the ruler of people. God is the ruler of people. doesn't matter whether you're strong, weak, full, hungry, barren, fertile, dead, alive, sick, well, poor, rich, humble, exalted. He gives all these, she gives all these comparisons. Only in God's economy, beloved, is the pauper a rich man compared to the rich who do not know the Lord. You could have absolutely nothing as far as worldly wealth. And if you know the Lord, you're richer than the richest man on the earth. You think of somebody like Nebuchadnezzar. Powerful man. Where does he end up? Grazing like a cow in a field. Lost his mind. But God puts Haman on on Mordecai's gallows. And he puts Mordecai on Haman's horse. We see that in the Old Testament. See, with God's economy, things are reversed. Psalm 135, verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. For the pillars of the Lord of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. You know, someone said He not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, He owns the hills that the cattle are on. And not only that, but he owns the dirt which make up the hills. Our God is over all these things. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4 says this, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So we ask the question once again, why do these things happen? Why does he do this? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to what? The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The point is simply this. We're not going to escape God's judgment because he's the one that sets the parameters. He sets when you were born. Has anyone here, did you choose when you were going to be born or who you were going to be born to or what nation you were going to be born in? No. God does what he wants, when he wants. To some, he gives riches. To others, he doesn't. To some, he gives honor. To others, he doesn't. To some, there's health. Others, sickness, wealth, poverty. Some receive light. Some do not. Some he brings to faith and salvation. Some he doesn't. Why? Because he is sovereign. He is in control. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Psalm 77 says, whenever God speaks, the earth quakes. Psalm 115 says, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 103 tells us that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and it will not be moved. And remember, in the New Testament, the angel told Mary about the plan that God had for her. And she asked, how can this be? And the angel replied, nothing is impossible with God. Do you understand who God is? Nothing is impossible with God. Kings come, kings go. But you know what? Yahweh remains. He's sovereign over all. Remember when Tim McVeigh, who uh, blew up the, the building, killed those people, terrorist action, he was uh, appointed to death, and he declined any last words. They asked him, do you have any last words before we put you to death? And he said, no, but I want to write something down. And this is what he wrote down. Amazing. At the end of his life, his life is, he's going to breathe his last in seconds and here's what he wrote down i am the captain of my own fate the master of my own soul see god's sovereignty destroys that last boasting unbelief because he is within seconds he was standing before the judgment seat of god and he realized his own fate See, but this is typical Yahweh. It's his modus operandi, his M.O. There's giants and he fells them. There's slain people and he, he raises them. He takes people that weren't a nation and he makes them a nation. He takes people who aren't even a people and he makes them a people. Why does he do all this? What's the master plan? Well, when you read the entire Bible, what you find is God's master plan is to give Mary a son. To give this virgin a son through a certain line. See, and it all begins to add up when you read it in its entirety. He causes the light to shine in darkness. Beauty for ashes, life for death, strength for weakness. He is in control. And God is not only the ruler of all people, the, the judge of all people, more holier than all people, and more significant than people, but the last thing tonight, verse 10 and verse 1, by the way, God is the Savior of all people. There's only one Savior. That's Jesus Christ. Many roads don't lead to heaven. Don't believe that lie. The Bible says very clearly there's only one way to the Father, and that is through the Son. There's only one mediator that we have, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one sacrifice that has been made that will work, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary for the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in him. Remember, during this time, there's no king around. Basically, you have Eli and his perverted sons involved in the priesthood. There's judges everywhere. It's a very dark time in the time of... See, she's not talking about Israel's king here in, in verse 10. She's not talking about that. She said, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His king. 
See, she knows, she understands. God gave her the ability to understand that God is going to bring a king to his people. He's going to bring a Messiah. And that Messiah will be their Savior. The anointed Lord. And so when we stop and we look at the beginning of this this chapter and focus in on Hannah's prayer, it's deep in theology. And we want to remind ourselves when we come before God as his people, can we say in our own heart that God is more significant than people? That God is more holy than people? That God is the judge of all people? That God is the ruler of all people? And lastly, that God is the Savior of all people. And if you know the Savior and you know that he is the only way, what is our motivation? Our motivation is to go tell that truth to those who are lost and dying in their sin, in this sinful, sin-stained world in which we live. That's why Christ left us here. That's why the church exists, to be built up, to be edified through his spirit and through his word and through his people so that when we leave this place, we can carry the message of hope and forgiveness in Christ Jesus to a lost and dying world. That's what we're called to do. So I pray tonight that we'll be motivated to do just that. That we'll be motivated to leave here and go out and proclaim the gospel of our sovereign Lord and King. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We pray that you would just allow Hannah's prayer to be an example to us of a proper theology when it comes to God. When it even comes to tragedies that affect our lives and come into our lives, Lord, that we would never shake our fist at you and ask the question, why? But we would come to a proper understanding of, hey, God, you know what? Somehow you have a purpose for this. You have a reason for this. You wouldn't allow anything to happen to me that it wasn't for my good and my blessing in the long run, even though maybe it doesn't feel comfortable at the time. We have to embrace it and we have to trust the God who is sovereign and mighty over all. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.